Welcome. Mabuhay. Selamat datang. Tabe. This is Eco-Nected, the podcast where we discuss the interconnectedness of people, culture, and the environment with a focus on Southeast Asian perspectives. We are Ari, Erika, Patin, and Sumarni, a group of Southeast Asian youth bounded by our advocacy for the environment. Each week, we will talk about environmental challenges in Southeast Asia, modern and traditional conservation methods, and ways that you can connect and tune into the environment in a time where humanity continues to lose touch with the natural world. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Eco-Nected podcast. So today I am here, my name is Erica, and I'm from the Philippines, and I am here with my co-host, Fatin. Hi everybody, hi our listeners, I am Fatin, and I'm from Malaysia. Okay, so at Eco-Nected, we believe that there's more than one way to do environmental conservation and to foster sustainability. So social entrepreneurship, for instance, combines both the business innovation and also creating a positive impact in our uh, local communities. Yes, Erika. So for this episode specifically, we'll be um, hearing stories of uh, two social entrepreneurs from South Asia, which is basically Philippines and also Malaysia, and how they have facilitated the provision of alternative livelihoods in their local communities, and how these enterprises have actually uplifted um, the community's economic and also environmental needs. So who do we have here today, Erica? Okay, so our first guest for today is Ms. Jella Petines from the Philippines. So Jella Petines is the founder of Batang VIP, which uh, in English literally translates to Children of the Verde Island Passage. It is a nonprofit that empowers a fishing community in Isla Verde, Batangas, Philippines, through education and livelihood capacity building. So for our listeners who are, who are not yet familiar with Isla Verde, it's an island uh, situated uh, just south of the Luzon Island here in the Philippines, and it is known for its rich marine biodiversity. However, it is still home to many of the Philippines' poorest Filipinos. And so to provide long-term help, Jella runs a social enterprise called Riftix. And through this business, the island community is able to earn through weaving palm leaf products and hunting sea glass to produce unique jewelry. And so this empowers the fisher folks, especially coastal women who have little to no economic opportunities. The dream of Riftix is to one day help the community rise from poverty through more sustainable livelihood. So hi, Jella, and welcome to Eco-Nected Podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here. Hi, Jella. So Jella is not uh, alone today, actually. We also have um, with us Hazi Ibrahim from Malaysia. So Hazi Ibrahim is the CEO of Demi Laut, a social initiative of Break Engineering Solutions, which modernizes traditional fisheries to uplift traditional fishes and transforming their value chain 
to enable them, them to govern the marine environment and the food security challenges that we are facing today. And if you, are, if you don't speak Malay, uh, Demi Laut literally means um, for the ocean. Um, so as an engineer by practice and an entrepreneur for five years, um, Hazi has uh, have won several awards and also mentorship, including from Shell, Google, UNDP, Youth Co-Lab, ASEAN's SEDP, and also Magic, and still going at it. So Hazik believes in the continuity of grassroots solutions through a transdiscipline and circular model. So hi, Hazik. Welcome to our little podcast. Hi, hi, Co-Connected. Uh, Erica and Fatin, it's really good to be here. Okay, so hope it's okay that we're diving right in. So maybe to begin, um, can you each tell us all about what your social enterprise is, like what kinds of items and services probably that you sell, and what's the goal of the enterprise? So maybe Jella can begin talking about Refix. Hello guys, so Reefix is a social enterprise that was created because of the pandemic. So what happened was we were already operating community-based tours in Isla Verde, Batangas, Philippines. Uh, we did like a full-blown tourism program there uh, with the support of so many private um, entities. And because of the pandemic, we had to stop um, due to safety reasons. So uh, in mid-2020, we uh, thought of ways to pivot. And thankfully, there was a dyeing weaving industry um, in Isla Verde. So from only four old women who were left uh, weaving palm leaves, uh, there are now 20 women. So we were able to make it more profitable for them by um, helping them access the market, especially in Manila. and. Uh, we're now creating sea glass jewelry, which is made of, if you're not familiar with sea glass, it's weathered broken glass. Um, it's created by the current, the waves, um, and because of time, uh, sea glass is formed into something that's more beautiful. So <laughs> I'm not sure if you could see it. Um, I'm also actually wearing a sea glass bracelet at the moment made of rare um, colors. So we sell a lot of these. Um, and I'm super happy to show you the rarest color of them all, which is bright orange. So there's only wow. one in 10,000 sea glass pieces uh, where you could find uh, the orange one. So <laughs> it's super rare. I have no idea how to price it yet. But um, <laughs> yeah, we have it. So proud. Um, sea glass comes from all over the world, and these are historical relics, though they could be as young as 20 years old and as old as 200 years old. Um, and there are sea glass colors that only come from the likes of Europe, like uh, red, black, um, etc. And a lot of them got stopped uh, being produced in like the 1800s, like the black one, or the early 1900s, like the red one. So if you see these colors, it's really exciting because it, it's very rare. So uh, we turn these things into beautiful jewelry to sell. And my goal overall for Refix is just really to increase our income per household 
um on the island because right now it's the, the average income per household uh, of the fishers in the island I'm helping is less than $100. So how can you support a family of five to eight people with less than $100 per month? Uh, so I really plan to at least double that within hopefully three to five years. Uh, I know it's ambitious, but I really care a lot about this island, which I've been helping for nine years. So I quit my corporate job for this and I'm doing my best to make it. So yeah, praying for it. Thank you so much. Wow, that's amazing. Given that <laughs> Thank you've you. been with the community for nine years, you know? So yeah, yeah. thank you for sharing. And I really li like how you say that every piece is like very unique. It's like the nature is giving you like gifts and you choose which one. And then yes, you exactly. That <laughs> that's so cool. Actually, so, I um, have a question. Like, is the sea glass, is it like for only certain like beaches or do like every beach around the Philippines have this? I guess most beaches uh, in the Philippines have it, but not all the beaches have it in as much abundance as Isla Verde because um, it's right in the middle of a passage where the currents are strong. So uh, because it's, a, it's rich in marine biodiversity, it's also rich in sea glass biodiversity. Uh, <laughs> so um, the, currents, the currents from all over the world go through it. So we have glasses from different parts of the world and um, it, makes, it makes it sort of a treasure trove of sea glass compared to most beaches in the Philippines. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing, Jella. So um, Jella's one is a bit more like product-based, right? Um, so I would like to go with like Hazik. How about like the Milau? Can you tell us more about the Milau? And is there any items or is it like more on services? And what's the goal of the Milau actually to you, Hazik? Yeah, I'm, I'm still in awe with um, Jala's work, you know, the passion of, of using the historic glass as relics to improve the uh, community's uh, income. We're coming from the same perspective, um, but probably with um, you know, less arts, uh, you know, artsy touch on it. Um, yeah, it's amazing to be able to connect to different histories based on you know, the uh, resources that you can come across in the ocean. On my end, <clears throat> we're looking at a resource that may be depleting. Um, we're looking at how you know um, the uh, practice of overfishing has been um, so uh, entangled into the community's practice today uh, to a point where if we are coming up with projects in terms of um, trying to improve the lives of the traditional fishers, we tend to get like a 50-50 uh, you know, um, feedback uh, out of it because firstly, um, we, we are supporting a dying uh, you know, heritage. Um, but on the other end, are we actually contributing towards overfishing if we do uh, protect this heritage? But it's a community's life, you know, they depend on it. And I think it's up to us to identify, understand, educate, and then disrupt. So you know we're coming in an angle where we're trying to create change, you know, at least to those who had been overlooked for some period of time. Uh, if we are to transit them into aquaculture, or you know, based on the understanding that we've that we've got, um, in order for us to manage food security a little bit more better, 
we should not be dependent on um, coastal fishing, but more onto aquaculture. But how would this be affecting the lives of the traditional fishers? Um, you know, they are about uh, 130,000 of uh, traditional fishers registered in Malaysia alone, and they could be more unregistered ones. And uh, they, I think they, it goes up to a total of a few millions around Southeast Asia. Um, I do find it a significant number if we do just migrate and leave them behind. And, you know, being human, I think they are doing what they're doing just because they are desperate, trying to make ends meet in their life, trying to get food on the plate, you know, getting educations for their kids. And it's, it's, it's quite unfortunate to see how they are caught within this wicked cycle, we name them, you know, um, being trapped um, without any access to financing, um, competing with um, commercial boats, um, uh, being uh, exploited by middlemen, earning up to you know, uh, 300% lesser and um, somehow having lack of access to tools and facilities to even improve their lives. Um, that's the wicked cycle. And, and probably due to this wicked cycle, you know, they are, they are driving themselves to you know, practice destructive fishing. Uh, you know, they're, they're looking at just different ways just to, just to make a living. So you know, we're, we're here, we're, we're coming up with different uh, experiments, iterations, models, to come up with the right, you know, uh, approach to solving this problem. So, for example, we started with a net hauling device. Um, apparently, traditional fishers are uh, or have been uh, hauling their nets um, through hand methods, um, and it's actually pretty uh, labor intensive. Um, you know, they have to spend. I think double the time of casting the net or maybe triple the time of casting the net when it comes to hauling it and they may require a lot of manpower which leads them to um, sharing their income or earnings from each of those nets reducing the uh, profitability that they could have earned you know and uh, but because it's just how it works um, everyone is you know um, happy to get a, a little amount rather than nothing at all so um you know, this kind of conditions uh, are not only you know, uh, limiting them from uh, getting you know getting better fish, going further into the sea, um, you know, uh, casting slightly deeper into the sea, uh, and also even uh, considering um, what do you call it? Uh, considering uh, on concentrating less into the same area, you know, just because of the time that they had to uh, no, uh, spend on when it comes to loading the nets. So with this hauling, uh, automated net hauling device, we call it the Pamukat now, after uh, a name of a, a late traditional fisher that we have worked with. Um, he was the designer of the product and he thought that all the traditional fishers in the Malaysia would benefit from having this product. Unfortunately, it wasn't as easy as just getting the product across. Traditional fishers just can't afford to purchase the product that uh, you know, uh, even though they need it and this is when we have you know started to come up with this uh, adventure of trying to come up with different values you know either by improving their income um, or be by you know providing access to them to finances or you know by coming up with a model where you know they could earn somewhere 
ano, either by feeding us back the data of what they have caught for the day or either by you know, increasing their earnings at least by uh, uh, you know, 30 to 100 percent within our first period of uh, time um, and and perhaps then they would be able to uh, you know, uh, acquire this kind of products to make their fishing activities a lot more practical and efficient um, so from that idea uh, you know, when we started uh, we are now coming up with um, different types of uh, products uh, we are now providing um, uh, micro business for traditional fisher to empower their community to rent out ice packs uh, for traditional fishers to uh, increase the quality assurance of their uh, fish further increasing the value of their fish that they've caught reducing wastage as well um, somehow we managed to reduce the price of uh, ice pack rental uh in comparison to the ice cube uh, purchasing and we have somehow managed to reduce it by 14 times more per day so imagine how it could help the fishes to you know improve their lives and have a better market as well mm, we're also coming up with um, ways uh, for us to empower uh, the local communities to uh, bridge into the traditional fishes community I mean, um, we buy fish, we eat fish, we enjoy eating fish, but we never really know where it comes from and how it is being sourced. And perhaps, you know, if we engage with them, you know, every, every one of us could play a part in providing better quality fish to our, you know, our people, our peers, our friends, our neighbors, our uncles and families and relatives. Um, but at the same time, together, uh, collectively, we'll be able to help the traditional fishers to you know, earn better. Um, and the uh, outcome out of it is that uh, we would actually be uh, targeting to reduce the uh, pressure on overfishing by traditional fishers um, because of the uh, increase in terms of value per uh, landed fish rather than looking into volumes to get the same amount you know, of, of landed fish. Um, we are coming up with uh, another product as well which is an AI machine learning system. It allows us to characterize uh, the species of the fish being caught, um, which would automate uh, the process of uh, listing down the landed fish of the day from traditional fisheries. Uh, we are trying to introduce the products of traditional fishes uh, to the open market. Um, apparently, we found out that traditional fishes products are more fresh or fresher than the uh, fish caught by big boats because big boats usually would take about 20 to 30 days before they would land uh, with those fishes but traditional fishes would be landing day to day um, not only is it fresher um, the operations of traditional fishes are more green in comparison to big boats uh, if you compare to the ratio of fuel being used by traditional fishes to the number of fish that they've caught in comparison to the big boats, uh, you know, activities, which somehow releases more green, uh, no, sorry, more carbon footprints. Um, yeah, there's a lot of these new things that we have come across. So we're, we're being, you know, experimental and, and uh, we've been running a lot of R&Ds just, just to get to this position right now. So, you know, uh, we're very fortunate. We've got a lot of partners. We're very, 
mm, you know, we, we believe that we are innovative. Uh, we might just be a bit crazy somewhere, but um, you know, we 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 uh, we like to come up. We you know with many ideas with our partners, trying to come up with just you know different ways to to allow us to create the value, um, not only for the traditional fishers, but uh, you know. Uh, be, uh, being being a player in in the uh, with the community of traditional fisheries, uh, I, I think this is when we could make those changes and disrupt the current practice. So yeah, that's where the millout is coming from. Wow, thank you for that, um, Hazik. So actually, there's so much like um, so much meaningful things that you have said. Actually, in the Philippines, maybe Jella even has like more firsthand experience. But um, I've also like um, been able to go to some coastal communities and indeed like there's a big problem in terms of like how middlemen exploit how they put on so much of the rice. So like the fishermen only get a certain percentage and then the rest goes to the middlemen. And um, actually it's amazing. It's okay to be crazy, especially if it means like it can bring new innovations uh, for the local fisher folks because uh, here I think um, we've also like done the in terms of the ice chest like you know because really this wastage of fishes is really one of the big problems and however I think we haven't done the AI machine learning I'm not sure if <laughs> Jella has some efforts on that already like characterizing the fish catch but that's amazing and I think um Maybe later on we can like, I don't know, exchange like this um, experiments that, you know, lead to success in terms of increasing the income of fisher folks in your country. Maybe we can also apply it here in the Philippines. So moving on, I think our listeners would also want to know like how it actually started, you know, especially when it comes to like a, a social enterprise, um, the, the the, the first step or the, the, the first uh, this first step is like basically the hardest I, I, I think which I, I don't have my own special enterprise which you can uh, comment later but how did you both of you actually come up with the idea it was it like um, being part or being uh, mingled with the community for a long time like how does it actually start and uh, maybe we can start uh, with Jella because um, you, you briefly mentioned about having to uh, I mean mingling or being part of the community for nine years. So that's a very, very long time. So what was your starting point like, Jella? Okay, I'm not sure where to begin because it was very organic. I don't know what you call it in, in English, but um, the locals call me the sort of hobo of the island <laughs> because I just really, you know, I just hang around there. Um, I started off as a fisheries researcher um, after graduating BS Environmental Science because uh, I focus on coral reef communities. So I got to know a lot of fishers because I was assigned to interview hundreds of them all around the country. And what I noticed was they were so so nice like super nice and it's weird because how can you be so generous when you have the least in our society um there was this one time so i'm just gonna be a, a short anecdote um my boss said okay our budget is so small we can't afford to to have you um 
sleep in accommodations, informal accommodations. So you're going to have to knock on the doors of fisher folk every two to three nights and sort of ask if you can sleep over. And I'm like, okay, so we're basically like homeless people <laughs> asking poor people if we can sleep over and then just compensate a little bit of money, you know. So I got used to, I actually learned some dialects because of this job. <laughs> and then um, I, uh, I went, so yeah, that's, a, that's what I did for a year. I went around asking, hey, um, is it okay if I sleep over? Like, you don't know me. I don't know you, but is it I? <laughs> and then um, they were so nice. So they were actually very intrigued about me because I was from Manila. I was not dark-skinned. Um, I sort of looked Chinese, which is foreign to them. And they wanted to learn about me. Um, and I was like, I right, that's cool. As long as I have somewhere to sleep and eat. And then my research partner and I, one night, we slept over at the fisherman's house with three kids. So like there's five of them, the mom, the, the dad, and three kids. And then they served us like a pound of rice with three pieces of dried fish. And where I come from, so it's a military family, we're not allowed to leave a single grain of rice because we're going to eat it in purgatory. <laughs> That's what my grandparents tell me. So I tried my best to finish it with my, my friend. And then I felt so bad because I could not because there was just too much rice. And then I told the family, I am so sorry, I cannot finish it. And they were giggling and they said, it's okay, we're just happy that you're full. And then little did we know that the whole family would split what was left of what we ate. So can you imagine what I felt? Oh, no. <laughs> I found out that this was going to happen. And I told my friend, oh my God, they're such horrible people. Let's not ever finish the food ever again. And then she said, yeah, okay, let's do that. <laughs> and then, but at night, there were only two rooms, right? And then the whole family wanted to sleep in one room, and then they gave us the other room. And we had this reverse tug of war with the electric fan because it barely spun to number one, to be honest. Like, your eyes could still follow the blades because it was so weak. And then they said, please have it because you're our guests. Aww. And I said... Uh, all right, it was just two nights. And then, so we got it right. And I think I reflected on this for quite a long time. And I was like, had they knocked on our doors, would we have done the same? Hmm. It's like, I don't think so. And um, what's sad is that these, these people, right, have the least. And we live in a third world country. And um, I guess... For me, knowing them for quite a while, I think this generosity comes from a place of knowing what it's like to have nothing and trying your best to avoid that pain for others because you know what it's like. So, um, and uh, so I, I guess this journey, this whole journey of helping fisher folk and turning down high paying jobs throughout my career uh, is really just trying to to give back to that sort of mentality they've been they've been giving me um, this that that compassion and trying to spread that as well to other people through the brand um and i'm i'm cool with um i'm cool with the financial struggles because it's very rewarding um 
I'm doing my best applying for grants. I'm not a management student or anything, but if you care a lot, you know, you, you kind of go a long way. And I guess, I guess this is, this is where it's all coming from. Um, and uh, I guess for Refix, again, it was just really a pivot, um, trying to make do with what we have. And what we have is the skill of the weavers weaving, and we have sea glass, so we'll make mo the most out of that. So that's where it all started for me. Right. I think I'm also, as from some, someone from a suburban area moving to like a more rural area, I also um, see that like from the, the, the um, fishing communities and also like indigenous people, like they're very, the hospi hospitality is like superb, like A plus. <laughs> like it's crazy, like they're very, very generous. They don't mind showing you stuff like behind their uh, backyard, for example. Oh, this is an interesting uh, plan, for example. And I'm like, oh, uh, I didn't ask, but thank you. Um, so yeah, they're very nice. Um, so thank you, Jela, for, for um, sharing that with us. And you also mentioned such a big point on compassion, you know, like the compassion that you actually got from them. That's what inspired you and that's what you want to give to others as well. So that's great. Um, moving on, how about you, Hazik? Um, how did your story start, um, especially with the Milawit? Uh, I'm 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 still a bit uh, awestruck with what Jala had just shared. Um, We're all awestruck <laughs> with Jala. It's an amazing experience. In in fact, it it made me feel like I'm not an alien that much after what I've gone through now. You know, because it's sort of, you know, I, I, we're curious. We're 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 ever learning. We uh you know we we don't want to stop at just yes or no. We we. We want to try to figure out what's the root cause, what's really going on down there, and that drive that Jala had shared, you know, that that motivation, that that you know, the prowessness. I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm just out of words to say how how it's very inspiring. So thank you so much. It means a lot. <laughs> keep that up, Jala. Yeah, keep that up. I felt the same, to be honest. Um, when when I started, um, I had a, a family friend called Bachik. No. She knows a family, a fisher by practice. We live in Miri. It's an oil and town gas. Oh, sorry, oil and gas town. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know we live by the coastal area, so we have like a very modern, you know, developed expatriate kind of culture. Um, we 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 somehow tend to, you know, um, be faced by the commercial lives of how a city you know an urban city would be in miri it's like so sort of like one of the uh you know most uh, well-earning uh, town in sarawak a big state in malaysia itself so we had like some unique uh, uh what do you call it uh exposure thing you know we I was I I having to meet Pachino, you know, in in his little village down in the suburbs, uh, about one hour away from the city, uh, where I lived. Um, one of my uncle had mentioned like, hey, um, since you just got back from uni and you don't have much to do, was the oil and gas uh, economic downturn that time? The price of oil had dropped from uh, a very high price to almost nothing at all and um, it was quite difficult for me to get a job so 
coming back from uh, you know being a mechanical engineer i always look i was i will i always enjoy design you know and i know that in, in malaysia it's just going to be a bit challenging when it comes to getting designing jobs um because most of the time it will be more of an operational job um but you know having that you know um cracking the head and you know, i just um followed uh, you know an uncle's advice to just uh, who who had asked me to visit pachino because he had spoken you know passionately about an invention that he had, had been working on so you now i i took that strat there you know met met up with him and then you know had learned a bit about this pemukat no this automated net hauling device he was only calling it a net hauler at that time apparently he had been working on on it for a couple of years i think about for four or five years he managed to get the attentions um, from the media from the government but it wasn't what do you call it it wasn't growing at all no it, it was he had to even sell it uh, at a low low price than the cost and basically he had to make a loss you know, for other fishes to be able to use it um and he was hoping that i uh, know having me to come in i would be able to help make that difference um so with that getting those background i was looking at product design so what should i do i should look into marketing it i should look into understanding it i should look into many managing the manufacturing process it was just a bit challenging you know the fishes traditional uh, coming from his background um he likes the idea but he can't quite grab you know onto um, what it means and then how it is being done No, so every now and then, if I came back to him with presentations on powerpoints or data or on on the cost, you know, and and the, uh, how we are looking into manufacturing it with a 3D model design, he likes it, but he just feels a bit, you know, uh, overwhelmed with too much information. That he would just be like, Isaac, you just, you just do it, just do whatever you do. Um, so when we, you know, when I started, uh, you know, I, I, it was in this village in in Bara and and. Baram, yeah, Baram. Baram's like an outskirt uh, with a lot of uh, trees back then. But there's a lot of logging issues going on, and most of the traditional fishes are staying next to like a cement uh, a factory because there's a lot of sand there. Um, and so they either are being a, 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 you know, a factory worker or they're working in the sea as a fisher. Most of them ended up turning back, you know, going into the sea. Because they enjoyed the life of 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 being and of leading themselves rather than you know being in under quite an environment that could be challenging for them. Um, so from that journey, you know, uh, we yeah, like 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 how Jala had mentioned, the fishermen's uh, very nice. You know, I was exploring, trying to understand, you know, what this that hole really means to the traditional fisher. What are the conditions of the traditional fishers? What are they facing? What is it like? What's the landscape? And, and and I was quite surprised. There wasn't enough data out there. There wasn't enough study going on out there about traditional fisheries. I can't even tell whether you know uh, traditional fishers are uh, uh, you know uh, what are their process line? How do they you know are they doing all right in in fishing? What are the you know current practice that they have? And what are the current challenges that they have? I was I was trying to reach out to um, the stakeholders, um, the governments, uh, I know district uh, uh, 
organizations that manage uh, traditional fishes. And it took them even one year for me to get a reply, not even a data, not even, you know, not even data, but just a reply. And it felt like a very dark world after a while, you know, being curious, being intrigued, being excited and, and, and knowing what it is, but everyone's shutting their doors, you know, not letting me in, uh, making me feel like a super alien, you know? like, like what, what's wrong with my effort? Is it, is it not meant to be? Am I, am I here bothering your work? Am, no, no, but does it not matter? Um, so, you know, coming from that angle, and I tried to try to like, I realized that the uh, product cost you know, could be a bit more lower. Um, I realized that the product was actually quite innovative. Um, unfortunately, the price was quite high um, that the traditional fishes um, finds it uh, a little bit too much for them to invest in not knowing what are the certainties of the practice uh, or, or that they could you know, improve on after having those, those products. So with that, um, we came across a roadblock. Um, how can we sell a product to a non-payable, uh, you know, non-paying market uh, without having profits? And this was it, about 2017 uh, when we, when we you know, iterate this, this model. It was just so challenging, um, but we were lucky, I guess. We we had been under the radar of um, Shell LifeWire, and then you know they they started to train us in terms of how to build our own business. Um, and the manager uh, Aisha had suggested you know for me to look into this angle of social enterprise and sustainable development goal. And that time it was still fresh, um, so. Now, through that, I then I realized like there's actually a, a lot of other ways that I could help these fishes to acquire this product, you know, and and uh, you know, and, and not only just sell to them. And I guess you know, they they are not the only market. There are others who could pay for them, you know, for whatever interest that they have. I just have to figure out how to make that work. Um, but with the current situation, you know, most of the businesses prefer to buy it from bigger boats, commercial boats, just because they are more professional or reliable. Um, I guess it's more easy to buy from one source rather than to manage a pool of traditional fishes, managing it together. So I, I try to restructure the uh, perspective that I was you know, taught by these local practices. And, and then I realized like, hey, what if I go crazy? What if I try to get all the air fishes you know, in, in small amounts? Uh, would I be able to manage and, and compete with those bigger boats? Um, what if I would be able to ensure that the, 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 the practices of the traditional fishes is sustainable? Will that increase the value of the vendors? Uh, would they appreciate you know, having a sustainable branding to their fish you know, or catch fish? Um, what if we would be able to um, provide a platform for traditional fishes to report on you know, um, uh, the governance of, of uh, fishing. You know, they will be able to come up with data on, on um, the total number of landed fish and will be able to reflect it you know, uh, in relation to the, the, the biodiversities in the ocean. And you know, those thresholds, if we could manage it, will it actually be a, a better practice? Mm, and then what if we are, you know, are able to provide other jobs for traditional fishes? to not only report you know, their landed fish, 
uh, cut, but also in terms of money, monitoring the impacts of uh, climate change on the ocean. Will it actually mean something? Uh, but, but when I started back then, everyone was like, Hazik, you're doing something crazy. You're doing a charity. You're selling your products to somebody who can't pay. You're not profitable. And Hazik, you better change your model. You better stop wasting your time. And I was probably just a, hence a little bit crazy. I was like, hmm, I think it could work. No, I think they are, I think this is the, the the only way to disrupt this. I think this is how we could make changes. I think I should begin something and and I I had to steer alone. So locally I I was I was um seen as the guy who is fanatic about about you know um doing doing odd stuff um and but internationally having this exposure and I I think I hit the first international platform with Shell a global Shell Lifewire Top 10 Innovator Award. And that's when they were training us about um, you know, the business model canvas, the innovation approach, the idea of, of coming up with hypothesis, and you know how we, how we could project, communicate our work, and you know, how we could package this and turn this into a value where we will be able to get, acquire grants or, or capital or access to fundings that will allow us to increase our operation activities. We realize that the idea is all about getting interested, uh, vested investors to you know, buy, have the buy-ins in our work uh, to allow us to continue our mission. And yeah, Jala, happy to sit down with you in any ways if I could share my experiences to help you to achieve your vision and goals because that is where I was starting. And I'm very happy to you know help uh, those with those big hearts and brains and souls uh, to continue with their work and, and, and help others, uh, you know, passing it forward. Um, so yeah, from there, that, that, that was when the journey began. I, it becomes a bit more technical from here. I'll be very happy to share these details further later on, but I'll leave it at this for now. Right, cool. Crazy, crazy is good sometimes. <laughs> but you showed us that crazy is good. <laughs> so yes, like, uh, like there's even like a quote that says like, um, you know, like the people who think they are crazy, they are the ones who can change the world. So keep being crazy, Hazik, with your ideas. Maybe like, you know, one day it can really be the key to, uh, to like give like the social justice that local fisher folks need. Yeah. Thank you, Erika and Fatindel. Thank you, Hazik Angela, for speaking so beautifully about, you know, how it all started. And actually, you're putting... The people like you're putting a face to the people like before I uh, when we're talking about your social enterprises and all I couldn't think I couldn't imagine that who, who the person is actually uh, actually is that who is the community and all but you have given me that idea you put the, a, a face uh to, to 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 that so again social entrepreneurship it's all about you know the three P's people profit and planet and you really spoken beautifully about the people there so thank you. Yeah, so like just to, I guess, bank on what Fatin said about the three Ps, like people, profit, planet, maybe uh, for this one, we can focus on the people aspect. So I think Jella has already like given some nice and some um, interesting anecdotes about the people she's working with in Isla Verde. But um, I think we want to know further, like, because um, you mentioned that um, in your bio that it's coastal women that you work with. So are you solely working with coastal women or do you also work with um, other uh, maybe youth or maybe uh, fisher folks? 
And then, like, um, prior to the enterprise, like, um, what was their situation? Did they not have any other sources of livelihood um, until, like, the refix, until the palm weaving uh, products and the seed glass uh, jewelry products? Can you please um, elaborate more on that? Um, I hope I, I heard the whole question. So, okay, let me describe the, the coastal women I work with. Uh, nearly 100% of the women on the island do not have any source of income. And so I mainly focus on them. And this year, my goal is to get them banked. So I want them to have bank accounts with growing savings by the end of the year. And then thankfully, uh, I think it was a couple of months ago, we were able to form a, a cooperative finally uh, for these women to get them organized and have that sense of empowerment and pride in what they do as women who are finally earning for their families. So it's a big deal on the island because it's still highly patriarchal. And then, so about 20 weavers, nine are, only nine are active at the moment because since it's just a small enterprise, we haven't been able to get as as many orders as we want yet. Um, and then from only like a handful of sea glass hunters, we I have recorded 92 individuals. Um, and this includes fisher folk, women and and children. <laughs> I'm like, am I doing child labor? <laughs> because you're not part of my idea, <laughs> but why are you picking up sea glass? <laughs> and then um, I, I guess when they're, they're playing the shore and they see sea glass, they're very sharp. They pick it up and then they also hope to contribute to the family income. So yeah, I accept that and still buy it from them. And uh, the situation prior to me coming in uh, to the scene of livelihood there is that they relied on aquarium fishing. So aquarium fishing is, if you know Finding Nemo, you know what this is. So those Nemo's, the dories, those fish that they catch for uh, the fish trade, uh, that's what they do. And they do it via free diving, which is crazy because it's high effort and high risk. And um, they, the yield is so small given the amount of effort and time it takes to catch fish uh, without any machinery. But the trade-off is so small. So if the middleman asks to buy it for one Philippine peso, which is how many centavos in, how many cents in US? Okay, to give you an idea, one dollar is about 58 Philippine pesos and they want to buy it for one peso. <laughs> um, so yeah, you do the math. It's so small. You can, you can, you can't even buy a piece of candy with that. So, so imagine the middleman wants to buy like a small antias for one peso. And then even if the fisher says, can I sell it for two pesos, the middleman's going to say something like, oh, no, we'll just get from somebody else. And then, of course, the fisherman's going to be like, but I have nowhere to sell this to. So they're stuck, right? It's called 
what's it called? Um, they are socially indebted to their buyers. So they're under the mercy of the middleman um, because they do not have access to market. They have no idea where the fish goes. And um, the best ones actually get exported internationally. So if they buy, for example, an angel fish that's actually just medium sized for 50 pesos or $1, it could cost as much as, Erica, how much is 3,000 pesos in USD? <laughs> I'm so I'm not good at with math, but maybe it's like, like one hundred fifty dollars, something about it. <laughs> yeah, something like that. No, it's less. Oh my gosh, it's less. It's like sixty, seventy dollars. Man, I hope I'm right. This is recorded. <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the situation there is really awful. It's so awful. Um, but like I said, you know what? Just pick up sea glass by the shore. I'll pay you so much more than one peso per common piece and even much more for rarer colors uh, so that the, the conditions are safer, it's more profitable, and hopefully more sustainable in the long run. Because my goal as somebody who came from the fisheries industry uh, I mean, the research industry is to sort of um, alleviate the fishing pressure uh, in our seas. And one way to do that is to sort of divert their, their efforts in livelihood to something that is more sustainable. Um, that's why we did ecotourism there, etc. So instead of in extracting from the sea, they need to protect it to get more long-term benefits out of the sea. So yeah, man, I went I went a long way, huh? <laughs> From describing the, the community. So yeah, that's that's the situation of the community prior to refix. And at the moment, um, I'm applying for a grant. So I'm praying for that because I really want to train them to to drill and create their own jewelry from there because I still um I still subcontract the labor here in Manila um, so that it's more direct and impactful um, economy-wise at the same time so that if we get the grant, we'll have more capital to, to create more stocks because uh, there's actually high interest in our products, especially the sea glass. It's just that the, the, the companies who want to get stocks from us um, I cannot provide enough inventory. So hopefully if we get a grant, so yeah, holler those impact investors listening to this. My name's Jella Petinas from Refix. Please contact me. <laughs> yeah, we need all your help. Yes, please. Thank you. Contact Jella. <laughs> yeah, so yes, thanks. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jella. Um, how about you, Hazik? Like, are you working with a very, very specific site-specific based um, community? Or is it like a broader kind of um, fishing folk community? And what was like their situation prior to, 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 to the introduction of uh, Demi Laut to the community? It's a great question, yeah. It's a very great question. Um... We come in a micro and macro approach, I suppose. Um, every different community has different pain points. 
different ways of functioning, different cultures and practices, different nuances. Um, we would not want to try to fit what one community is facing to another community. So we always have this mindset of, of keeping it open. Um, this is where we are you know, empowering the volunteers you know, so that they would be able to help us enrich the understanding of all these different sporadic communities you know, through their own perspectives. And then we will be able to fit in the right solution uh, you know, according to what the problem problems are that they have they are facing at the moment um so yeah from that angle we you know we we we, we would go down to the ground just try to you know, assess any fishes that we are not able to 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 connect with to engage with um traditional fishes they come in different uh variety some of them has been oppressed for a bit too long that they can be a bit um a bit rough uh, or a bit you know rigid when it comes to uh, being open to the public or the you know any other strangers in their lives um, while some communities are just so used to having people coming in that they are very open and they have these experiences on how they could you know, grow and, and, and make changes to their lives through these connections some of them had been you know stuck in a mindset where they believe that uh, there will always be aids coming there will always be doles and subsidies and i can make extra money just by you know playing around with these um but some of them had you know, things change uh, different geopolitical you know, conditions within their area having limited access and it really affects them um but yeah if we would we if we would want to try to generalize you know what are the uh, challenges that they are facing i do have a slide here i was wondering if it's okay to share the screen or if you'd like me to describe it um please advise i think this crowd would do because this is on spotify yeah oh yeah all right just nice okay mm -hmm. um so yeah so uh, from the uh, you know from the images you can see that there are three separations of activities from the upstream to the midstream and then to the downstream. So upstream would be where they are going out to the sea, um, trying to harvest the resources uh, you know, and, and ensuring that they have something to trade. Um, going to back to the port, you know, they would then reorganize the fish, trying to manage the distributions and logistics, trying to get the market you know, and, and hopefully there's some connection there. And that's what we would be referring to as the midstream. And then from there, then they would be making the sales, you know, selling it or sending it to a marketer, sending it to a vendor, sending it to a middleman. And, and, and yeah, some of these things that I've mentioned are not really the uh, their current practice because they would usually have a middleman or they would try to sell it to their neighbors you know, or, or, or in the market within their neighborhood, you know, which would in the end you know, be in uh, community's price because everyone have an access to those fish. Um, but yeah, uh, you know those those streamlines of our supply chain, um, you know they are facing a number of difficulties, um, such as um, uncertainties in terms of where the fish's locations would be now. You now having um, uh, uh, you know uh, facing challenges including uh, erosions or um, developments or um, just big boats coming into their area in the coastal, you know, no matter how we have already segregated uh, you know, the, the uh, 
areas where big boats uh, shouldn't come in just because they have a, uh, you know, an advantage in terms of uh, their fishing uh, equipment. Um, and as well, um, you know, going down, they will also be facing uncertainties in terms of the climate you know, and the weather um, and also the conditions of the sea. Um, they may not have enough informations and tools to identify, you know, how this would be uh, going in day to day, you know, whether it's safe to go out to the sea or whether, you know, they should consider something else. They can make informed decisions on, on what should they catch or where should they catch or why should they catch. You know? I mean, in the market and in, uh, in the market of demand and supply, if there's more over you know if there's an overpopulation of a certain fish then um, somehow the price would drop you know to an amount um, which might not be feasible to them um, and if they could be strategic you know um, selecting fish that is rare in the market and um, they could actually make a better you know, earning um, but you know, they, uh, at the same time it, you know they, they they just don't know they they they, they are not educated about other means of, of how they could fish apart from just using traditional methods and, and and with what we are facing today the changes are just so vast they used to be telling us how back then when they swim in the sea you know, they can just see fish everywhere they would be swimming with the fish you now and when they are you know catching a fish just catching a few fish would be sufficient because they're massive they're big but nowadays they're going into the sea out of the 30 days they are there you know, they could probably just capture fish with, you know, within five to ten days, and and then the rest is is just nothing else. You know, it's just not the same. Um, their market understanding as well. You know, in terms of um, using ice uh, cubes and ice packs, they're not sure why why it is important. You know, they they just feel like it's a very expensive thing to uh, acquire now in their current practice. That maybe it's just best to not use ice at all just so that they could make a better earning but little did they know that you know when they sell it to the middleman uh, if they have a, a sort of an amount um, just one spoiled fish would lead to the whole you know decrease of the price of that 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 buck right. of fish that they have, they have. Yeah. you know and, and and in terms of management in terms of marketing they they just rely too heavily on this middleman the, this middleman used to be, um, you know, their their parents working with the fishers' parents, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it comes in a very good uh, mix initially because back then there weren't enough facilities like roads, uh, you know, access to you know, to visit their village. That the the middleman used to be using like pickups and, and trucks to go through like coastal um, pathways uh, just to acquire this fish. So it was a good win-win situation back then. But you know, going down through through generations and exploitations, um, you know, they they've they've hand, you know handed down to their you know uh, son or, or grandson, and you know um, by at, at this moment, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't similar. It was more of like how can I earn more today so I'm happy and I and how could you be set with just a certain amount? So you know. It, it, there's a lot of limitation in terms of sharing now. It's not. It's not. It's no more win-win situation. They even exploit it to a point where you don't need to know where I'm selling this. All you need to know is if you sell it to me, then you will make your money. And if yeah. you don't, and if you lose my trust, then you know you, I, I can't help you anymore. 
And mm -hmm. I would, I'm, I'm, to, it goes to a point of extortion where, and, and now I'm going to pay for your boats. I'm going to pay for your assets. And I'm going to pay for your, your, you know, your stuff. Um, you don't have to pay me back. Um, all you need to do is just continue to give me, you know, to, to give me fish and probably with a lower price and I, we can make it a deal um and because the fishers never had those chance of uh, no, uh, opportunities to improve their uh, assets um, right. and they were they were uninformed they would just be uh you know using uh, using those 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 uh, um hanky panky stuff um just, just to clarify Hazik, like um so that means demilaut is like providing like models that any fishing communities can adopt in that sense and see how it would fit their own way of doing things? Is, it, is, it, is that how it works? Right, okay. So we, we, come in, we, we came up with a thought in our Demi Ilmu project, like what if we are able to meet the likes of you, you know, who's passionate about making a difference out there? We provide you with an app where you could source out to traditional fishers, so traditional fishers could report um, the catch of the day and now having you know having those inventories in your hand you, know, you could monitor and educate them like hey um be careful you should take a photo of how you have iced your fish so we can increase the value of your fish um mm -hmm. be careful with this fish apparently i've learned in the market it's overpopulating right now don't catch this fish if you tend to just catch this fish stop it go into and, and catch another different product. Um, I'm more aware that the squids are now less in the market. If you catch squids now, you, we can actually earn better. Uh, we, were, we are providing with spillage as well. Maybe you as a volunteer could now have you know, a certain amount of income while, while you're doing good. You know, managing the distributions from these traditional fishers who had trust with you. Trying to create a relationship with a fisher requires a lot of time, you know? Yeah, and, and things like that. There's the marriage between like modern approach and also traditional knowledge and also like our volunteers they might not know how the traditional people are doing things and they might not know the you know pachi the machi for example but this is like uh, a bridge to you know for example university students I, I can imagine like university students being volunteers and getting to know the pachi and machi like near their area for example because I'm living my university is like besides the sea so I can definitely see that happening uh, so yeah Cool. Uh, I, I've got an interesting finding to share, Fatin, based on your, 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 your sharing. So we're working with the university students in Sarawak and um, KL. Um, we've come across uh, an understanding, you know, because we've been told that traditional fishers might not want to use these apps. Uh, they might not have the buy-ins because they're not tax savvy. But we found out that the pandemic had affected them so badly that they're looking for ways on how they could remarket you know, re uh, their, their products. And they're willing to learn you know, uh, on, on how to use these apps to improve them. So, yeah, those are the study, uh, the, the, the real-time studies uh, that we are advocating right now. And, and um, uh, we, we believe that it could benefit the traditional fishers in a long way. Cool. And also giving them exposure, like the, the students themselves. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much, Hazik, for uh, telling us all about challenges in, in terms of, for example, linking from uh, beginning to the market and then how Demi Laot can actually like, you know, like sort of customize and adapt based on experience of each community. But um, now we're proceeding to, um, a while ago we discussed like the challenges like faced by the community. 
uh, in terms of um, sustainable fishing. So now we're, we want to ask you guys, um, how, um, what are the challenges that you like as a social uh, entrepreneur face in doing this? So we've discussed like impacts on people and planet. And now we go to the third P, which is like the profit aspect. So I think Jella already has like touched a little bit about this, telling us about some of the financial challenges really and sustaining the enterprise. So we really want to know, and I'm sure the listeners would also want to know your thoughts on the long-term feasibility of the enterprise. So uh, do you think like in the future, um, you can be able to like make um, more profit or um, do you think this can like go on even if, for example, uh, you leave the community for some reason? So um, any thoughts on it, Jella? I think I heard most of the question. So the question is uh, the financial sustainability of the social enterprise, right? Yes. Okay, cool. For Refix, I think I came into this with the intention of making that happen at all. So um, sustainable. Because uh, if we are able to help our fishers, we will subsequently be able to help our seas. That's, that's what I believe. Um, because they wouldn't be resorting to, uh, to practices that are going to, you know, stress out our seas. And this is coming from somebody who has been observing and immersed in the fisheries industry for quite a while. Um, if we make it as simple as incriminating our fisher folk and not providing long-term solutions it's really not gonna work out um and i i really believe that if if we're able to just sort of collaborate with them instead of antagonize them then we can make a, a you know miss universe a better world and um so yeah i i guess the the struggle at the moment, so Refix is barely two years old. Um, the struggle really for me is the formal know-how in managing a business. I'm, I could say I'm pretty street smart, but if you, if you challenge me about like, what's your business model like that, I'm going to be like, I'm trying to make it work. You know, like it's um actually at the moment I'm I'm doing all those stuff. Like um I'm consulting people who have already made it. So so successful social entrepreneurs who I really idolize. I'm consulting, and the one of the I I see them as mentors. So one of them said, "Please revisit your business model and make sure it's viable." Um, given how you have already been operating for a year. And then her learning as a social entrepreneur throughout the years. So she's been doing this for more than a decade. She was like, you know, I sort of regret uh, taking in investors who would have a say in how I would do things because um, they really constrained her in making things work in the way she knew it should work because she's the one immersed in the community operations and everything. Um, I, I guess she was trying to be respectful to the investors, but it really compromised um, the, 
the company and its longevity. So she, she broke down and everything. And she said, you know what? Had I gone back in time, I really would have preferred to bootstrap it and not have myself tied to people who would have a say on my decisions because um, you should trust yourself. You're the one in there. Um, and they're really just putting in money. So she said, uh, the way I would have done it is by applying for grants and relying on, what she say? She said, relying on pre-orders, especially for, I guess, the products that, are, that people really want, um, the ones that are innovative and stuff like that. So I was like, oh my gosh, I could totally do that. So that's what I'm trying to do now. Um, I'm revisiting my business model. And then I'm applying for a grant. I mean, I might apply for another one uh, if that doesn't work out. And then I'm taking in pre-orders for one of our coolest products. So if you check out Refix on Instagram, which is our main marketing platform, you'll see what we're doing at the moment. Um, yeah, so is there any other question related to that? <laughs> Thank you, Jella, for sharing. I think, I mean, you're being, being real and frank here. So that's really great because I think when we talk about social entrepreneurship, people have this romanticized idea of like, ooh, helping community and making profit. So it's very romanticized sometimes. So thank you for, for sharing the challenges. For sure. Um, <laughs> how, about, how about you, Hazik? Um, any, any particular challenges you'd like to share with us, especially on um, sustaining uh, the, the business itself as a social entrepreneur. Um, I'd like to share this piece to to you know to some of you guys based on the learnings and, and that I've come across. Somehow in Malaysia, the KPIs of looking at a good social enterprise is when they make money. You know, in fact, it feels like we are only important. We are only there. We are only doing our work if we do make money. Yeah, I know profit is important, but you know, when you try to disrupt a certain problem that you're solving, you know, as soon as you stuck your head onto when you make profit, you're not being disruptive. You're just capturing an opportunity and you're just hoping that you can grow out of it. You know, what, you know, what, I, what I feel like is in order for me to be meaningful, to, to, you know, to be able to complement uh, this community to really identify what's going on down there and to be able to source out different ways you know, to solve this problem i should you know focus on to tackling um, the monkey you know, rather than tackling you know uh, uh, creating a pedestal now a pedestal would be something that is tangible for others to see while you know in, in terms of tackling the monkey who is supposed to sit on the pedestal as the outcome of a project Nobody's going to ask you, how did you train the monkey to sit on the pedestal? How did you make the monkey you know, listen to your instruction? How did you, when in fact, you know, this, this, this path that Jella just shared, for example, is tackling the monkey, is the valuable experiences, is what it takes for us to be, you know, able to, to, to complement it in, in many ways as soon as we've got these resources. Um, so, yeah, as much as possible, uh, you know, being in a social enterprise, you know, the the drive should of course be about having a sustain, sustainable way uh, to to continue with your mission um, but you know the focus should should be in terms of how you would you how would you be able to create a value that caters to this 
No, because uh, as as how Jella had mentioned as well, investors do come in in those ways. They want to hold on to you. They want to. They've got all the money in the world. I've got a limit of two million dollars, and I can own ideas, funding us, you know, and training us, so that it would work. And I know we would be building, you know, a, a pedestal in and in those no, smaller little faces while we train our monkey, and we would have the you know uh, resources, the opportunity, the expertise, the 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 understanding of growth uh, while we while we do so. Um, so you know you're right. It, it focus on to validating your models. Focus on to you know coming up with the right angle. Don't accelerate yourself to 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 get the equity. I know I know it's 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 um uh, you know it, it, it's been romanticized that way as Fatin mentioned. Once you have acquired your VCs, once you've acquired your investor, you're doing a very good startup. Um, I've 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 come across this company um, in Canada. Who apparently is working with the Inuits um, to plant IoT uh, devices on um, melting ice caps and um, to measure the rates of melting ice caps every year around the world. And they are actually adding quite a lot after they've settled down with the right way to do so. Um, they're helping a lot of um, Inuits along the way to make a living. And you see, nobody would have thought that the values, uh, you know, or, or, or data or on how the ice cap is melting would be sufficient. Nobody even believes that climate change is real. But right now, when the time is real, when everything, you know, when the when the need is there, yeah, it, it works, it sells, it, it benefits everyone, and it it's it's a genuine cause you know, that 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 would allow them to move forward together. So yeah, those are just some of the uh, advices I, I may have to share from a social enterprise our social entrepreneur point of view. Thank you so much, Hazid. Um, I think we're now nearing the end, but before we rise, um, especially to those who are very much interested in social entrepreneurship, um, give them real advice, not like <laughs> uh, the ones that, you can be frank, as frank as possible. So maybe we can start uh, Jela first. Advice. Make sure your why is strong. Because if you're only in it for like awards, recognition, you're doomed. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's um it's really gonna get you going. If if um you genuinely care for the community you are helping out in your social enterprise, you're gonna go far. And I could say this for myself because again, I'm not a business graduate. I'm only an environmental scientist, but I've been I've been away from the corporate world since 2016. And um I could say that, you know, you can do it. You can do definitely do it if um your heart and mind is in the right place and you have the right motivations. And of course, always be open-minded because one thing I think that got me through is surrounding myself with the right people who encourage me to, to grow, to believe in myself because there will always be naysayers. There will always be people who will be skeptical about what you're trying to do. Even my family, I, I was met with some skepticism uh, when I quit my job, but I was like, you know what? If you know in yourself what you're doing, and I'm a very calculated person, just just play deaf, you know? And then 
it's very important that you keep educating yourself. So I'm always reading. I'm always learning from from people who have already made it or at least ahead of me in the game. Um, and I am not shy to send cold messages um, and say, hey, I'm a fan. Would it be cool if I ask a couple questions? I really want to help out these people. Um, and you'd be surprised how, how, how many people are willing to help you out. Um, through your journey because nothing will be lost if you just ask. So, yeah, I guess that's it on my end. Keep learning, have the right motivation, and surround yourself with the right people. Wow, thank you, Jella, for putting that really nicely. So for our listeners, remember to um, remember your wise and then also um, to surround yourself with people who believe in you, who support you, because uh, I guess so, uh, establishing or keeping a social, running a social enterprise is really not an easy fit for everybody. It takes courage, and we're so glad to have like both our speakers, Jella and Hasik, so courageous to be like disruptive and be crazy with ideas, really to really um, help uplift the communities that they work with. So, uh, Hasik, uh, do you have any final tips and advice for? other aspiring social entrepreneurs? Yeah. Um, to all of you out there, if you think that, you know, being a social enterprise is glam- glamorous, think again. Um, it's not as easy as it, it sounds like. Um, you, you're going to be uh, facing a lot of circumstances that could break you down. Um, there will be a lot of tears that you're probably going to be shed, and shedding along the journey, and you can't just have a mindset where you could just be happy, you know, settling down at at, at a yes or a no. Now, um, you have to be out there. You have to be alone. You have to crack the code. You have to know what you're doing and what you're facing, and you have to be resourceful. Have to do things that's that's probably uncomfortable you have to be on the boat you have to be out there you have to stay and stick with them you have to see those those things that not everyone else can see and that's probably why you're there um and uh, and and when you're there once you uh, you know once you have the understanding of, of what you think you could see you know use those informations those lessons those learnings trainings that you've acquired out there for you to apply into you know, your, your perspective and then create a new point of view. Um, and, and you shouldn't stop just there once you have a new point of view. It will always continue, you know, ever-changing, evolving. You know, and, and until you come to a mature point of view, uh, that would probably be when you know, you, you'll be able to, to then start to operate, start to engage, start to initiate and then make those changes. Um, if it, 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 again, it is difficult if you do have this mindset, if you really are not that determined, it's good. Um, you know, yeah, you do, you, you may have your career, you may have your background, you may have your skills, but it doesn't mean that your backgrounds, your core skills would not be complementing, you know, uh, this, this problems that, that these communities uh, are facing up there. Um, it's just about what you could do. Um, and, and always remember that it's a, a, a diversified world out there. Believe in the uh, 
the the uh, opportunities of looking at it from a transdisciplinary point of view. I'm an engineer. I'm working with the sea. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 just it, it's a mismatch. Everyone's asking like, hey, Hazik, why are you in fisheries? Um, but if you, you know, if you strive, if you're determined, uh, you could join the forums, join the conferences out there, meet with the likes of the people here, you know, Arika, Fatin, and Jella, you know, get exposures, just just connect, like like what Jella mentioned as well. Be brave. Um, if you you know if you know of a company, if you know of a person, if you know of um, you know mentor, if you know somebody's doing some similar work. Just reach out to them and then share share your differences and then you'll realize how how interestingly it's it's actually not that much of a difference after a while. So yeah. Um just just yeah, just just keep on uh, no, just keep on having this awareness. Um keep on training on your mentality, um, be a perseverance and a resilient and, and whatever you do, and whatever it means, you know, your soul, your heart and your brain, it has to be aligned. And if it's not for that aim, then maybe you should consider something else. And and that's my two cents. Thank you. Uh thank you everyone. Okay, I'll jump in for one last um one last bit of wisdom, I guess. Is I think for people to be on the path of social entrepreneurship, you should be willing to, to accept failure better than most people because there's going to be a lot of mistakes. And I guess for me, it got so painful that it started to become funny <laughs> because it's like one after the other. And um, as somebody who's always wanted to, to learn how to run a, a successful business, um, I always took each mistake as like bits of my tuition fee in management school. Like if there was a loss, I'd say, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And if you learn from the mistake, it's worth it. So, yeah, that's it. Thank you well so said, much. Jella. Thank you so much, Jella. That's very well said. So don't be afraid of failures. And um, it's really, I guess, it's really like a key piece of advice, I guess, for all of us. Maybe not just for those aspiring to be social entrepreneurs. Maybe even in general, like in your work, I guess, don't be afraid to keep trying to fail because you will, as they said, you will only really learn after you fail and after you have learned from your mistakes. So uh, for one final bit, um, now is the time for you guys, Jella and Hasik, to blog your social media. So if uh, our listeners would want to learn more about Reeftix or would want to learn more about Demi Laud, so where should they go? So um, Jella. Fix, that's R-E-E-F space P-I-C-K-S. Um, so yeah, you're gonna see our stories and products up there. Thank you. Thanks, Jella. And for Hazik, um, how do we learn more about Demi Laud? Right, for Demi Laud, um, you can visit the website um, demilaud.com. Um, you could also search um, for the uh, social media handles uh, of Demi Laud um, by just typing uh, Demi Laud in Facebook or Instagram. Um, yeah, you'll you'll be able to learn more about our activities, um, whether you'd like to engage with us, or uh, you could learn about the uh, challenges of the traditional fishes in our website. Thank you. 
still under development as well, but um, it's, it's somewhere halfway there. Oh, thank you so much, Jela and Hazik. Uh, we've learned a lot from both of you. Um, especially, uh, we're really excited to actually listen to our own people, I guess. Because when I when I hear a podcast and all, it's usually like very Western kind of point of view. So it's really interesting that you know South Asians are doing great stuff with their own communities, and um, we're learning about our own communities as well. So thank you so much for today. And that's a wrap for today's episode. So um, thank you, Jella and Hasik, uh, for being with us. And for our listeners, we will see you in our next episode. So bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We would like to thank the Mansfield Center and the YCD program for making this podcast possible. If you wanted to learn more about the eConnected podcast, do follow and subscribe to our social media channel, link it in the description box below. See you next time. Jumpa lagi. Paalam. Selamat panalu.